Hello. Welcome to my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History. This is episode four, and it's entitled, The Founding of America, colon, Great Ideas, Too Bad They Didn't Apply to Women. And I'm going to be covering in this episode the many ways in which the ideologies about women that I covered in episodes two and three really had rooted themselves in Western culture and are now a key part of the founding of America. The other thing you're going to see is that women were intricately involved in the founding of America in so much as they were part of the Revolutionary War, women fought in that war, and women also demanded to be considered when the country's founding documents were written, both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Before we get to that, however, I want to briefly cover a very important context for the founding of America. And that is something called the Enlightenment. If you've taken a European history course or a Western history course, or even sometimes very briefly in American history textbooks, they will talk about the Enlightenment and its importance to the founding of America. Because you, you cannot understand why America's founding and the ideas that went into the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution they didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of this very important, specific movement in the 18th century. Well, what is this movement about? Well, it very much built on the scientific revolution insofar as the scientific revolution showed human beings that it was possible to understand the natural world using reason and intellect and an understanding of mathematics. Well, the Enlightenment is going to take the idea that, wow, if man uses his ability to reason and to figure out how the cosmos works, maybe we can find a way to apply reason and rationality to human social problems, and most importantly, to human political problems. One of the most famous quotes about what is enlightenment was written by Immanuel Kant, a very famous philosopher, and he said, sapere ode, dare to know, dare to use your own reason to figure things out. And what's so important about this idea of using reason is that the Enlightenment thinkers were trying to say to people, you cannot use religion or just tradition as a way to explain things. That if you, if there is a social issue, and in this case, it, it can range from politics to crime to any number of things, the whole point is don't rely on a religious authority. Don't even rely on old political systems because if they do not survive the test of reason, then they shouldn't be followed. Faith and superstition were very suspect. And Enlightenment thinkers said, wait a minute, you cannot use that as a way to understand uh, culture and society. Moreover, the Enlightenment also focused on the idea that humans were capable of great things. So rather than having that focus that I talked about in the last episode about Christian fundamentals, the focus for Enlightenment thinkers is man is innately good. 
And if man uses his reason, his intellect to establish a culture and society, that is a great thing. And that importantly, humanity is capable of focusing on this life and this world. And we have the tools to make this world a better place. Now, that's just a general idea of the Enlightenment. But specifically when it comes to politics, here's how it goes. Up until the 18th century, if you look at Western society, it is ruled by kings and dukes and various other kinds of nobility. And the thinking was, particularly when it came to kingship, was that the king is God's anointed ruler on earth. He's God's representative on earth. And he rules by divine right. And in some places, particularly France, the idea was that there are no checks on the king, that the king can establish policy, whether it had to do with finances or war or anything else, he's not answerable to anyone. And the English also dealt with this in the 17th century by having two kings that kept trying to force that divine right on them. And there was a revolution. They cut a king's head off and they wrote a new constitution and a bill of rights in which it was clear that political authority does not come from God and is not vested in some person that is God's representative. So then where is political power centered? If if a ruler isn't a ruler because of divine right, where does political sovereignty lie? In other words, who's sovereign? Well, many Enlightenment thinkers, most notably John Locke, Rousseau, Voltaire, Montesquieu, all of these famous figures of the Enlightenment, all of them said political power is centered on the people. We are the possessors of our own political sovereignty. And it will be John Locke who enunciates the social contract. And Rousseau will also discuss the social contract. So this idea about there existing a contract between the governed and the government really begins to root itself in the Enlightenment. And the way the contract works is this. We all are, possess our own political sovereignty. But in order to have law and order, because men are not angels, we need a government. So in a conditional contract, we say to the government, okay, we're going to give you our political sovereignty. But the deal is, is that you must rule in our interests. You cannot pass laws or have policies that are to the benefit of only the upper tiers of society and the, the, the people who are in government. That laws and policies must be centered on what is good for the people. What is the will of the people? And government must be answerable to the people. And in fact, if there is a belief that the government is not acting in the interests of the people, then the contract is null and void. And we, the people, have the right to reassert our political sovereignty. In addition, 
There is this notion that there are certain inalienable rights, certain inherent rights that men possess that no government can take away. And that is where we get the, the discussions about the Bill of Rights is that if you write down what the government cannot take away from you, then it becomes very specific as far as those rights are inherent to people. Okay. So interestingly, all these enlightenment thinkers who wrote about all of this great political sovereignty and the will of the people and the contract with the government were all written by white men. But what's interesting is that the failure to extend it to women is kind of curious because the way a lot of enlightenment ideas were circulated in France and England and then books did come to the United States, we know that a lot of the founding fathers read these enlightenment things, were well-versed in English law and in the revolution in England that made parliament the parliament that representatives of the people as the center of government. But women were a big part of this. Women had what were called salons, where all these great thinkers used to come over and have a party and drink a lot and exchange ideas. And women were major participants in this. And as I said, women in America were well-versed in Enlightenment ideas. They were reading the books that were coming from France and England. They were reading the pamphlets that revolutionary Americans like Thomas Paine were having published. So it's not as though women were not exposed to these ideas. They were. And in a few minutes, I'm going to be reading a letter from Abigail Adams, where she makes it clear she knows exactly what's going on and wants to make sure women have a voice in government. But the problem with that and the problem of this great enlightenment thinking, these great new ideas about government, all of that runs smack dab into a 2,000 year tradition, actually longer, but uh, a, a millennia long ideology about women, that women are designed for only one thing, uh, which is to focus on a household and children and being a wife, because physiologically, they're incapable of doing anything else. So none of this is going to lead to women actually being included. But they are going to be very much involved because they are such a part of the fabric of revolutionary America. So the idea that men are going to be the ones at the center of government determining what is for the general good or what is the will of the people, all of these founding fathers are going to understand that women don't have a role in this. And that, again, is primarily because your uterus is your destiny. You, it's, it's not even so much that you have a uterus. It's that your uterus has all of these functions that impair your ability to think and participate in society. And by this point in, in Western society, as we've seen in the earlier two episodes, there is no question Western society understood that the female reproductive system essentially is a weakness. 
It is something that impairs both a woman's body and her mind. And again, it's it's so difficult when you're a woman researching and reading these ideas because you have on the one hand, finally, this breakthrough in Western society that recognizes that people are sovereign, that that there is inalienable rights and innate rights. And yet, for some reason, they are never going to extend those to women precisely because we have a uterus and those various functions. We also have some very specific ideas about women that the founding fathers themselves wrote about. Thomas Jefferson, in several letters and in other places, made clear what he thought about women. And in his mind, women are excluded from public affairs in any way, shape, or form, because they are incapable of any kind of participation in society. And that women were essentially supposed to be uh, a supporter of their husband, so that women would take care of the household. They would help their husbands in their political life by being hostesses, by being pretty adornments. So in other words, if you're a Thomas Jefferson or a George Washington or a James Madison, you want to have the right kind of wife. You want to have a wife that understands her role and her place and that when you are in a social and political situation, you're contemporaries understand that you have a wife who understands her place. And that place is, again, to be a supporter of her husband's. And Jefferson was, interestingly, wrote about women's dress. In other words, he writes a letter to his daughter. And what he's focusing on is the idea that you need to have a suitable presentation for your husband, not for you, for your husband. So listen to what he wrote to his daughter. A lady who has been seen as a sloven or slut in the morning will never efface the impression she has made with all dress and pageantry she can afterwards involve herself in. Okay, so essentially he's saying, if you start out looking all slovingly and dirty and, as he says, a slut, then it doesn't matter what you do later. It's You can't cover that up later. He goes on to tell his daughter, I hope, therefore, the moment you rise from bed, your first work will be to dress yourself in such style as that you may be seen by any gentleman without his being able to discover a pin amiss. In other words, you have to be like spit spot, Mary Poppins spit spot. And again, it's because of how it reflects on the husband and because that's what your job is. Jefferson also seemed to be a little obsessed with hygiene. He wrote about feminine cleanliness, quote, nothing is so disgusting to our sex as a want of cleanliness and delicacy in yours. Woo, okay. Essentially, <laughs> you've got to make sure that not only are you dressed correctly and a pillar of of wifely obedience for your husband, but you must be clean because if you smell, then 
we are really turned off by that. Jefferson clearly believed that women did not have a place in politics. And so if women have no place in politics, he thought, as as the ideas about the country's founding were coming together, that there would be no reason to ever give women the right to vote. A big part of the, especially the founding of the Constitution, is what we call the franchise, which is just a way of saying the vote. And there will be debates about, well, how do we extend the vote? Do you have to have property? Do you just have to have a certain income? And that was a big deal. But likewise, the idea that somehow the vote would go to anyone other than men was a complete anathema. As Jefferson wrote, the appointment of a woman to office is an innovation for which the public is not prepared. And he saw no reason for women to have the vote because they're never going to be in politics. He also believed that women would be excluded from the deliberations about the vote. And he listed several groups that had no place in deciding in the new country who should get the first one group was infants until they arrive at years of discretion. The second group was women who to prevent deprivation of morals and ambiguity of issue could not mix promiscuously in the public meetings of men. Essentially, and we're going to see this in the next episode and from every episode here on in, the idea that somehow a woman involved in public life looks promiscuous, that if you're mixing it up with men, you're not the right kind of woman. You're not that good, obedient wife. You are someone who is stepping out of the role of your sex, and that makes you, as he says, mix promiscuously, as though any kind of interaction between women and men in the public sphere is going to be promiscuous. Likewise, this will extend to education, which I'm also going to talk a lot about in the next episode, which is that there was no belief that women needed any education besides basic rudimentary reading, writing, and maybe a little arithmetic to function in society. So clearly the founding fathers understood that there is no place for women in this new country. But the reality is, is that women we're not ignorant of these new Enlightenment ideas. As I said, Thomas Paine's Common Sense was one of the most well-read pamphlets, if you will. And women are involved in American revolutionary activity. As America moved closer to the actual moment of revolution, women, even very young women, were involved hands-on. And here, I'm going to bring up one of my basic points about this whole podcast. Why is all this shit left out? Why is all this good stuff about women left out of your American history textbooks? And I hear the same complaint. Oh, we, we have to triage. We have to cut some things out. Well, I'm sorry. In the pages in which you cover the American Revolution, don't just give a couple paragraphs. Oh, by the way, Abigail Adams wrote this letter. And oh, by the way, this person, Betsy Ross, sewed the flag. First of all, 
a lot of historians, there's, there's no Betsy Ross. And she sure didn't do a flag. I mean, the one Betsy Ross we know about made tents and stuff like that. So the women that you do know about that do make it into these textbooks are just, oh, the nice little old lady sewing the flag or the women bringing food and water to the troops. No, women did a lot more than that. And what I would like to see even in my own lifetime, is a textbook that weaves all this together. It shouldn't have to be that you have to go to a separate book that says Women in Revolutionary America to read anything about Women in Revolutionary America. Why isn't it in the mainstream? And yes, I'm getting mad. You're going to notice as we go through these episodes, I get mad all the time because it keeps on happening and it doesn't change and the same excuses are used. So I will get mad. And I guess that makes me very unwomanly for Thomas Jefferson because I am going to mix it up in politics and talk about why I am mad. Okay. Here's an example of a woman that I think is worth knowing about. And I'm going to go through a couple of these women who, hey, why aren't they in your textbook? Now, we all know that the Revolutionary War starts when the men in Lexington and Concord are gathered, their militia together, they have arms, and Paul Revere and some other founders had set up a system where they would alert the militia if the British arrive. And so a famous poem that was written by Longfellow in the 19th century, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. And it goes on to talk about this great hero who rode through the streets to warn that the British were coming. Well, you know, what's really interesting is that a lot of times they don't finish the story, which is that uh, Paul Revere later gets captured by the British. Now, they let him go after some questioning, but he and some of his fellow criers were definitely held by the British. But have you ever heard of Sybil Luddington? I hope you have, because Sybil Luddington rode 40 miles through a rainy night to spread the news of a British attack and round up 400 militia men to fight back. 40 miles, and she was 16 years old. Paul Revere, his ride was 16 miles. So <laughs> I believe there is a statue of Sybil Ludington commemorating her ride. But again, it's like, that's such a great role model. If I had been in fifth grade, and learning about Paul Revere and his ride and the British are coming, I would have loved to have heard about Sybil Ludington. And yet I didn't. So what about the other women? Well, in addition to Sybil Ludington, I love uh, the involvement of women in the pre-revolution and the Revolutionary War. One thing women were very much involved in is in the tea boycott, so that as women running the household, they were going to help the cause by boycotting British goods. And boycotting British goods, for sure, is one way to get at the British government. Okay, then I want to tell you about these two women, Prudence Wright and Sarah Shattuck. 
They led a group of women who were dressed in men's clothes and were armed with muskets and pitchforks to guide their village when the men went off to Concord and Lexington. And in fact, they guarded their village and captured a British spy who was carrying secret messages in his boots. Love that one. And then this is one of my favorite women, Elizabeth Bergen. She helped 200 American prisoners of war escape from a prison ship. Now, these prison ships were like, just call it disease ship. They were disgusting. You tended to die more from being on that than, than actually fighting. So she helped them escape this disgusting prison ship by leading these men, 200 American POWs, over the frozen ice of New York Harbor in the middle of the night. The British were so mad, they put a price on her head, a bounty, and she had to run away and go into hiding for fear of being hanged. So just a few of these great women and women who stayed in camp life, uh, a woman who was given a military pension when her husband was killed in battle. Women such as Deborah Sampson, who cut her hair, dressed as a man, and lived as a male soldier for 18 months. And she was wounded twice in battle, once a blow to her head and a gunshot in the leg. And she was discharged when the doctor discovered that she was female and shouldn't be there, but she got a military pension. So it's interesting that these women are not going to just be said, well, you're a woman. You shouldn't have been here in the first place. No, they, they were there. Okay. Here's another one. I love this. Nancy Hart. Six armed loyalist soldiers. Remember the loyalists were the Americans who were loyal to the British crown. Nancy Hart cooked dinner for them when they invited themselves over. And of course, the men were sitting around drinking. And once they were drunk, Nancy Hart grabbed one of their rifles, shot one of the men and held the others at gunpoint while her daughter ran to the Americans for support. Last one. Anne Hennis Bailey wore a man's buckskin clothes and rode a black stallion named Liverpool. During the war, she worked as an army courier and scout in West Virginia and received regular army pay and rations from patriots. So there you have just a few of all of these great women. And I'm not saying you need to put all of them in a textbook, but you need to talk about women's involvement in more specific ways. It's not enough to say, oh, women were part of the Revolutionary War too. No, that's not enough. You need to talk about how they were involved and what they were doing and that they were committed to the cause. These women aren't putting their lives on the lines just for their husbands. They're putting their lives on the lines for political ideas that they believed in, which is why when the country's founding documents are written, women demand to be a part of it. And this brings me to one of the most famous letters written in American history. This one they do include in a lot of the history books. And this is a letter that Abigail Adams wrote to her husband, John Adams. Now, what's going on here? Well, it's March of 1776. 
We all know that the Declaration was published in July of 1776. So the men are all getting together and talking about what should go into this. And if you've ever read the Declaration of Independence, and I think you should, it, it's a very short document, but what's really important is the preambles because a lot of the uh, rest of it are complaints against the British government. And I'm going to get to that in a minute because women are going to use the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as templates for a lot of the documents that they are going to draft demanding equality under the law. Okay, so what's going on? Abigail Adams is one of these wives that I think even Thomas Jefferson respected her because she was she was really a partner to John Adams. She wasn't his subordinate in any way. He consulted with her. He listened to her. He took her advice. But in this one case, they have an exchange of letters that really tells us a lot. Okay, so please bear with me as I read this letter from Abigail Adams to John Adams. She says, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power in the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. Okay, this is a couple months before the actual declaration is written. And she's saying right there, we're going to do what you guys are doing right now if you don't include us in the new government, if you don't understand that we deserve representation too, and that we know from history that men are tyrants, and if you just let them do what they want to do, women have no voice at all. Okay, she then goes on to say that, that your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend. Why then not put it out of the power of the vicious and the lawless to use us with cruelty and indignity with impunity? Men of sense in all ages abhor those customs which treat us only as the vassals of your sex." Regard us then as beings placed by providence under your protection and in imitation of the supreme being, make use of that power only for our happiness. What did I just talk about with governments and the enlightenment? Governments are, are instituted for the betterment of the governed. And Abigail is saying, dude, we're one of them. We are the government and don't underestimate the fact that we understand now that this new way of thinking, this new political ideology applies to us too. Note also something that you're going to see over and over again, and it gets me mad every single time. And that is Abigail is using a reasoned, intelligent, cogent argument 
this is this is a letter by someone who understands the political ideology of the day. This is not a letter from someone who has no idea what's going on. So the very thing that men say is important in terms of establishing a new government, she's saying, yeah, you got to do that, but we have to be represented too. And, and remember the history where for millennia, men have been tyrants and have been able to do with us. What did she say? Make us your vassals and treat us with cruelty and indignity. Okay. So what is John Adams going to say in response? Well, the first thing he said, is, and this is about two weeks later, he writes her back. And what you're going to see here is the typical response over and over again. All right, let me start. John Adams write to his, writes to his wife, as to declarations of independency, be patient. Read our privateering laws and our commercial laws. What signifies a word? As to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. We have been told that our struggles has loosened the bands of government everywhere, that children and apprentices were disobedient, that schools and colleges were grown turbulent, that Indians slighted their guardians and Negroes grew insolent to their masters. But your letter was the first imitation that another tribe, more numerous and powerful than all the rest, were grown discontented. That is rather too coarse a compliment, but you are so saucy, I won't blot it out. Woo! Okay. So basically he's saying, look, all of this has been going on and all this turbulent political upheaval, we see people everywhere in all walks of life. Children are disobeying. College students are rebelling. Enslaved persons are rebelling, which, you know, I don't know how true that was. Certainly the idea that enslaved people would have any representation and any voice, we'll get to when we, when we get to the Constitution because they were treated as not human. Okay, so he goes on to talk about that she's saucy and that, wow, you're talking about a rebellion. Let me go on and finish. Depend upon it. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems. Although they are in full force, you know they are little more than theory. We dare not exert our power in its full latitude. We are obliged to go fair and softly and in practice, you know, we are the subjects. We have only the name of masters, and rather than give up this, which would completely subject us to, de to the despotism of the petticoat, I hope General Washington and all our brave heroes would fight. I am sure every good politician would plot, as long as he would, against despotism, empire, monarchy, aristocracy. I begin to think the ministry as deep as they are wicked. What's he saying here? Well, one of the things he's going to say is, look, we've never really exercised our power to the fullest. We are not going to do that. That is a complete untruth. Of course, men exercised their power continually. And then he gives the freaking patronizing answer that every man is going to give 
in the 19th century. Oh, we know better. We know that we're really the subjects. We may have the name of master, but really, who rules the roost? If we actually gave you any rights, we would have a despotism of the petticoat because we're already bossed around by you. Oh my God, that one makes me mad. If that were true, why would it be so hard to write laws that don't oppress women? Why is it so hard to see women as something other than a wife who's going to scold you or a wife who's going to rule over you at home and therefore doesn't need a, a political voice? Okay, patronizing, patronizing, patronizing. Now, after these letters, interestingly, Abigail wrote to her friend Mercy Otis Warren and John Adams wrote to his friend James Sullivan, and both of them talk about the letter that they wrote. And Abigail is pissed. She writes to her friend, he's very saucy to me in return for a list of female grievances, which I transmitted to him. I think I will get you to join me in a petition to Congress. I thought it was very probable our wise statesmen would erect a new government and form a new code of laws. I want venture to speak a word on behalf of our sex who are rather hardly dealt with by the laws of England, which give such unlimited power to the husband to use his wife for ill. Wow. She's saying that's all I was asking. Is that unreasonable? Is that an argument that has no place in this political context? Of course not. She said that she threatened a rebellion because they want to be represented. And so she goes on to talk about his answer and that that he essentially isn't going to do a thing. That however reasonable and well thought out her argument is, however much it fits with what the men were doing, they're going to ignore it. The last point I want to make is about the Constitution, which we're going to talk about many times in various episodes. When the Constitution was drafted... And it was drafted between 1787 and 1789. The most important part of that constitution is the phrase, we the people, the opening line. It doesn't say we the men without women. It, it says we the people. But clearly the understanding of people that the founders had included only white men and to a large extent men with property. But women are going to use the Constitution over and over again to make clear that they are full members of this political community and deserve representation. And it will be a fight that is going to take, and is still ongoing, arguably, and is going to take 150 years to even see the most modest changes that understand that women should have a voice in government. So throughout the 19th century, as we look at the women's movements in that century, you will see the usage of both the Declaration and the Constitution as a basis upon which women are going to argue for the idea that every part of the Declaration and the Constitution applies to them too. And crucially, after the 14th Amendment is passed in 1868, 
the game changes because of the language of that amendment, which I'll talk about in detail. Now, I want to make a quick note at the end here. One of the things we're going to see as we discuss the Constitution and the interpretation of the Constitution by the Supreme Court as it applies to women is going to be this, again, collision between what our documents and our government is about and what the reality for women was. And that collision is what happens and what is still happening. But I want to make this comment. Throughout its history, when one looks at the Constitution and particularly the interpretation of the Bill of Rights, those are the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. When you look at that, what we see is a gradual expansion of rights, particularly in the 20th century, that rather than seeing the the Bill of Rights as something that is limited, that in other words, if if it doesn't show up in language right in one of those 10 amendments, then clearly that's a, a right that you still have and the government can't do anything about. In other words, if the, the right isn't written down in the Bill of Rights, it doesn't mean you don't have it. In fact, it means the opposite. It means that you do. But this idea of an expansion of rights is really at the heart of what the American promise in our founding documents suggests, that it will be we the people, it will be the represented people, it will be the government will represent the people. And so the expansion of what the people means going from propertied white men to poor men, men without property, then uh, freed enslaved persons, and then finally women, it's an expansion of rights. Well, quite recently, the Supreme Court heard a case, you may have heard about it on the news, in which the consideration is a contraction of rights. And I can't think of another time when a right that has been recognized by the court as a right inherent to a person, you know, the Constitution applies to them, this is unprecedented. The idea that a fundamental right would be considered something that the Supreme Court can say, no, it doesn't exist. We're going to take this right away. That doesn't happen. And it's no accident that it's happening with regard to women. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining me on my podcast, You Are Your Uterus, A History, and I invite you to get in touch with me. Please go to my Facebook page, Dr. Victoria Della Torre, and please leave any comments or suggestions that you might have, or feel free to email me at drvdlt at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time. This has been a production of the Yali Christina Company.